Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, author and stand-up comedian Rich Scheidner. They were like, do as long a show as you want. We want to sell liquor. Do a two-hour show. There were comics you never heard of that were road dogs back then. And they sold more liquor than anybody because they drank with the audience. Like Ollie Joe Prater or John Fox. And those guys, that you'd go into the bar, the bar, the club owners, like so bar owners, we were liquor pimps is what we were. But they go, <laughs> oh, Ollie Joe is just here. He sold $11,000 worth of liquor. I go, well, I'm not, my liver's not ready for that. <laughs> I'll go do all my damage when I get off the stage. Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here, we interview artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found, along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, under Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral 2. You can find photos and more about our guests on the Fun to Know Podcast pages on Facebook and at Twitter, and we'd be delighted if you'd take a minute to leave a review of the show on iTunes, any of those platforms, or just send me a note with your thoughts through Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Just a quick announcement before today's show. I'll be the instructor of a new class starting on July 10th at Fleischer Arts Memorial in Philadelphia. Over five Mondays, we'll be looking at some of the great works by documentarians on film in a class called The Giants of Documentary Film. We'll see films by Werner Herzog, Agnes Varda, Errol Morris, Jessica Yu, Robert Mugg, Frederick Wiseman, and Ava DuVernay. It's a great batch of films, and I invite you to check out more about the class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R dot O-R-G. Now on to today's show. A conversation with author and comedian Rich Scheidner. Rich Scheidner rode in on the wave of the 1980s stand-up boom, playing stages coast-to-coast, working with the best comedians of the era, and along the way appearing on HBO, David Letterman, both Jay Leno and Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, as well as working and writing on shows including Roseanne, Married with Children, and The Jeff Foxworthy Show. Scheidner took time off from doing stand-up in the late 90s, but has returned in recent years. I had the good fortune to see Rich play the Borgata in Atlantic City a few weeks back, where he took control of a crowded house and again delivered his lean, compact set like the seasoned professional that he is. It's all in Scheidner's recent memoir, Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life as a Stand-Up in the 1980s Comedy Boom, out on the Mr. Media imprint. It's a highly readable book where Scheidner is witness to the birth of modern comedy while working with people of the stature of Jerry Seinfeld, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, and Sam Kinison, as well as taking the stage on some of television's most watched programs. But deeper down in the details, there's a beautiful, quiet desperation where struggles with economic status and chemical abuse all led to a personal and professional collapse. Plus, there's jokes. I wanted to talk to Scheidner about the book, but I also wanted to talk about our shared past. We both grew up in the same small southern New Jersey town, Pennsville, a town of about 14,000 historically tied to the county's DuPont chemical plant and later the Salem nuclear power plant. It's the kind of small-town kids dream of escaping when growing up, and Scheidner's success was a sort of inspiration and source of local pride. Although I had never met Rich before, I did attend kindergarten with his younger sister, Rhonda, and I believe Rich was friendly with my cousin, Cheryl, since high school. As I'd hoped, that Pennsville camaraderie kicked in right away, and we talked about Rich's opening for the Ramones, working with Roseanne Barr, 
taking bad advice from Sam Kinison, making a lethal faux pas with Johnny Carson, his friendship with caught comedian Bill Hicks being competitive with his stand-up ex-wife, who to make fun of, swimming in chemical waste, and more. Let's head over to the kitchen table for our conversation. We're already mid-story, discussing Scheidner's earlier book on stand-up, I Killed, before I could even start the recorder. Be prepared for a surprise intruder threatening to derail our conversation before the 10-minute mark. Here we go. Yeah, I remember that book. Oh, that book had its own story. Hey. How many years ago did you do that? 2005, 2006. 2005. Was that your, yeah, that was your first... Uh, yeah, yeah. And it was, it? it was really difficult because we were getting the stories from everybody and comics aren't writing them. There uh-huh. I think maybe two or three comics out. Let me see. Alan Havy is the only one I can remember wrote his story that got in the book. Oh, really? And everybody else, we taped transcripts either on the phone or live and then had them transcribed. And there were so many stories coming in. Mark Marins actually got attributed to somebody else in the book. <laughs> I can't even remember what's, what what's it was. What's the title of the book again? I Killed. And there were so many mistakes being made. And we had never dealt with the publisher before. And they'd go, this story's not very funny. We like the story. We like who it's from. And it just, it, can you can you make it funnier? And we'd go back to people going, can you make it funnier? They'd go, what do you mean make it fun? <laughs> you know, it was really, really difficult process. I would never do it again. I think we'd have made more money if we'd worked at McDonald's. <laughs> when it came down to the hours, when we looked at the hours we put in and the money we got for it. Wrang- wrangling a bunch of comedian kittens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was not. It was <laughs> what, not. Did, what did you contribute to that book? I, two one. stories. Um, one was I, I uh, opened up for the Ramones. That was my first story. Yeah. Uh, for, my first paying job was opening for Ramones. And the other one was uh, uh, I had to follow or uh, was going to follow Milton Berle. At a, it was a Milton Berle story. It was a great story. The Ramones story was funny because when the, you had the kind of act that could play with yeah, both Ramones, yeah, both and Ramones. Milton Berle. Yeah, well, they were a few years apart, but uh, <laughs> but um, the Ramones happened in like '78, and when the book came out, we went to go to Washington D.C. to do some publicity, and this music critic down there said he didn't open it for Ramones. I was there to Ramones. It was at the Child Herald. I don't remember an opening act for Ramones. And so I got in a discussion with him. I know I did, right? I got in this argument through this uh, other um, uh, um, music critic and, and a guy who made a documentary about the, the Bayou Club down there named Dave Nuttycomb. So finally, I said, look, I'm not saying it was, I wasn't up there long. I got beer tossed at me and I got soaked and the guy just waved me <laughs> off. And I wasn't up there long. I'm not even sure what the the introduction was for me. He says, and then finally the guy comes back and goes, yeah, there was a disturbance on the front of the stage before the show began. I remember that. Was that? I said, yeah, that was me. I was just a disturbance. You clearly couldn't call me opening act. I was just a disturbance before the show began. So uh, I, I, I should step back and introduce you. I'm, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm here today with, uh, with Rich Scheidner. I, I, I couldn't be more delighted to have Rich Scheidner at the microphone here at the Kitchen uh, Table Studios at, uh, at the Fun to Know podcast. Uh, Rich, I, I, I've been aware of since I was uh, 
a young man, because we both came from the same southern New Jersey town, <laughs> South Jersey, as we say there, Pennsville, New Jersey, by the uh, Delaware Memorial Bridge and by Cowtown, and uh, it's a unique place. But it, it's uh, you know one of those classic kind of you know, Springsteen-like working-class uh, towns where uh, a big part of the narrative when you're young is how do you get out of here? How do you <laughs> yeah, get away? That's what's you know what I realized. I was listening to Jungle Land not long ago. And, you know, the rat's own dream guns him down. I go, that genius of Springsteen, every graduating high school class in New Jersey had at least one guy nicknamed Rat. <laughs> at least one guy. Pennsville, amazing uh, array of nicknames. Right, uh, right. You know, Mudger, I know a lot of uh, uh, nicknamed people. But uh, but talking about getting out of there, I mean, uh, I, Rich, I think, graduated from uh, Pennsville Memorial High School 13 years before I did. But uh, you know, by the time I was, uh, you know, a senior in '83 or so, Rich was uh, famous as the, the man who got away, <laughs> the man who did escape and uh, escaped to Los Angeles. You know, lived out all our dreams. Was a, a popular stand-up. I remember seeing everywhere as a kid, uh, Merv Griffin. And uh, Johnny Carson, and as the, as the years went on, I remember seeing Rich and uh, Roxanne getting beaten up by by Steve Martin, which yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think would happen to a Pennsville guy, but <laughs> I, I can fantasize too. Um, uh, and uh, he went on to be a, a regular at the uh, the opening season of Married with Children, and mm-hmm. wrote for Roseanne. And I remember uh, a, a splendid night seeing you in, in uh, the Pittman Theater in Pittman, New Jersey, just uh, knocking them dead, killing them. Nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah. A great night, Sally Starr, the local yes, kid show Sally host, Starr on and made a mistake of handing the mic to her. Never <laughs> hand the mic over. I could not get it back. Uh, she's a woman uh, who knows what to do with a mic. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. she was. She was ready to go. She has a few things to say. She was. She had a few shots backstage before she went out. That was the year I, I filled in for Howard Stern. So I, I had that radio uh, forum to publicize these two gigs. I did the Pittman Theater and I did the um, Valley. Forge Music Fair. Yeah, you did the morning show on WYSP yeah, for yeah, one yeah. or two weeks? I no, it was like three or four, I think. It oh, was yeah. um, Howard Stern went on vacation. That was his first simulcast. And what happened was they had me down in Washington, D.C. with a few other comics when they were going to bring Stern down for his second simulcast was in Washington, D.C. So the station manager said, look, I want to get people prepared to have just a funny morning thing. And so we're just going to work out all the kinks. Would I have a comic do the morning show and have somebody who's you know a technical person run the board so i would just step behind a mic and and uh and so it worked so well there and i'd i'd lived in washington dc for a while so i did really well there he said would you like to go up and fill in for howard stern on his vacation i'd like you to come up there in philly i said fantastic and after that howard stern had in his contract no more guest hosts only best of stern <laughs> so i was the one and only Fill in for Howard Stern. Wow, wow, yeah. and and you seem like you would be a, a natural on radio. I imagine you did I loved a lot it. Of- I loved it, but I I came to have great respect for what he did because you know Stern's show was you, you four hours. You have to go till past ten, and uh, six to like past ten. It's like twenty and, hours of programming a week and you know? talking and talking, and yeah. I would be like, somebody call, please, somebody call, and something. You know, and that's how I got hooked up with Sally Star. I started talking about Sally Star <laughs> once, and when she used to come down to. That the amusement park at Pennsville, the Riverview Beach amusement right. park, and she used to make those appearances down there. And there was always these stories that then she'd go over to the musical bar, and make some <laughs> different kind of appearances there afterwards. But you know, our gal Sal. <laughs> There's oh, a legendary story. What you got? There? A, tick. a tick. I am in. I am now. I am now in South. Look at this. A tick. My first tick of the season. We may take a pause here for a second and do something about a the tick. tick. This is my first tick. Is that not a tick? I think it's a 
Hey, that's a tick. Yeah. You been out in the woods? No. I don't know how I got it. I just felt it on my arm. Is that hilarious? You okay? Do you need anything? No, I don't need anything. It's just hilarious. It wasn't into me yet. It's the first time I've had somebody attacked alive on the show. <laughs> no, I'm definitely home. Uh. Compliment each other when they see a change. You know, the woman gets another hairstyle, her friends will say, That looks great on you. It's a beautiful hairstyle for you. It's great. You know, guys are not like this with each other, you know. And some of you women know this. You've experienced it. Have you ever asked one of your male friends what another guy looks like? Is your friend cute? I don't know. He's a guy. He's a guy. I'm a guy. I don't know what he looks like, right? I don't know what any guy looks like. When I'm in the gym, I look at a locker, look at my feet. I look at a locker, look at my feet. I don't look anywhere else. Uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about, sure. uh, but uh, I, I would like to uh, to uh, talk to you about Pennsville. I, I read your book. Uh, we should mention the, the memoir, uh, Kicking Through the Ashes, uh, from Rich Scheidner. Uh, My life as a stand-up in the 1980s comedy boom. Yeah. And uh, boy, you uh, were, were right there rubbing shoulders with the, the movers and the changers through the entertainment industry. But uh, before we get to that, I do want to I do want to talk about Pennsville. Yeah. Because I think I'm still recovering from my uh, childhood in Pennsville, and uh, I haven't talked to too many people that made it out that <laughs> can yeah. tell the tale. What do, what do you remember as a, as a, a kid growing up in this working class well, town? Uh, you, first of all, I didn't know there was any difference. We didn't realize there was a difference. We didn't. I didn't realize there were rich people. Everybody was sort of like on the same plane there. Even if you're, I mean, eighty percent of the people worked at Duponts. So everybody's dad was a shift worker. That everybody was, wore that was the my same father clothes, and, right? And the Every, lead division processing, right? Lead, yeah. So everybody's dad was on a shift work. Everybody kind of wore the same clothes. They'd, they'd go out to Cowtown and buy your clothes for the coming fall, or or uh, W. T. Grants or whatever. Everybody wore the same clothes. I didn't realize that there were rich people till uh, we went and wrestled uh, Tattnall High School. It was a private school where all the people who were the executives at DuPont uh, went to school. Their kids went to school over in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. Yeah. And we went in there, and the locker room was carpeted, wood paneling everywhere. And we're like, whoa, whoa. Of course, we stole everything that wasn't nailed down. <laughs> Literally got on the bus. Coach Harford gets on the bus afterwards and, and throws two duffel bags on the floor of the bus. says, I want this thing filled with everything you took. <laughs> and he goes off the bus, comes back five minutes, has a cigarette probably, came back off five minutes later, things filled with all the stuff we stole. But he didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, everybody was just blue collar and everybody worked uh, at DuPont's or their dad's, like my dad was an insurance guy or somebody might have had the tire store. But other than that, everybody worked at DuPont. So I I didn't know there was any difference. Yeah, and this was, uh, I guess, you know, the late 60s or so that you Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up, you know, I was born in 52. So, you know, my... My Wonder Bread years there were, you know, the late 50s and the, the early, all through the 60s and graduated in the 70s. So DuPont was it. I mean, they used to have DuPont Day. The seniors would all go down to the auditorium. They just hand out applications. Anybody who wants to work at DuPont, you got a job. Did you see yourself uh, following Never that did. Path? Never did. My dad was not a DuPont guy. And so uh, where, I wasn't raised did, thinking I'm going to work at DuPont. Where did you see yourself as a young kid? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. I'd say the things that people would say, that's a good boy. 
That's why I go, I'm going to be a doctor. Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> and then I went to Gettysburg College in the first year. They, I, I saw what people had to do to go into medical school. And I went, I'm not going to be a doctor. Organic chemistry, I could barely get through high school chemistry. So then I go, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. Everybody goes, good boy. Good boy. I'll be a lawyer. I didn't know. I didn't have any any ambition to fulfill that. I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah, but you ended up. Uh, uh, it comes up in your in your book. You, you, the the book stays in South Jersey for a bit, and you're yeah. sort of you know uh, late teens, early twenty years. You worked for a lawyer, and in, in, uh, yeah, well, I, I I yeah, I went. I came back from college and right back to the hometown because I didn't know where else to go. I hitchhiked around for a while. In the Did summer. you graduate from college? Gra- graduate from college, came back, and I didn't have any idea. I mean, I remember everybody. That I I was in college with one of the jobs got jobs out of out of college. I mean the economy was great, so but I didn't have a job and I didn't even apply for a job. I didn't even go interview with anyone. What, what did you study? I studied business and then sociology. Gra- graduate. So I didn't I didn't even know what I wanted to do. And I went back and I just was bumming around my hometown. As fall began and I was substitute teaching and 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 managing this bar it was a popular bar the mariner bar and it was called the animal bar and it was at a band they played bands there were live bands places renamed it's right. riverview now but it's still there yeah. yeah and and uh and i was doing that and i had no idea what i was going to do and i was just uh uh drinking and 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 eating uh uh a lot of white beauties and white white, white crosses and black beauties and i just hesitate to talk about all my drug use back then but that's what i was doing and i had no idea what to do you know and uh and so i started going to law school uh i i, I um i worked for these uh a guy tried to try to get him elected i think his name was hughes tried to get him elected congress I remember. and uh some of the guys were said there's a law school in washington dc that's not accredited so you might be able to get into it because i didn't have the greatest gpa and so i got into the school in washington dc and started going there and then i met this guy basil beck who was sort of like he was this sort of renegade pirate lawyer in South Jersey who handled a lot of clients, a lot of drug dealing clients. I once asked him, I said, we had, we had a lot of drug dealing clients who were, who were uh, uh, I said, how can we have a lot of guys? He says, well, they're accident prone, and that's good because we got a lot of personal injury cases. <laughs> you know, guys lighting a match and burning their eyes on. So, uh, but I uh, worked for him, a clerk for him, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Wow, uh, but but somewhere along the line, uh, the the stand up bug. Yeah, it was you. always funny. I always made people laugh. You know, I you know I didn't realize how funny it was. And some of the people I went to school with, like they tell me, young grade school, you were always trying to make people laugh. And I was always want to be funny on a low level. And I kind of circled around doing actually performing. Your father was a fan of comedy too. He was wasn't huge he? fan. Yeah. I didn't realize what a big fan he was until I got into it. And I knew he had comedy albums. I didn't know that. Not everybody had as many comedy albums as my dad did. Who did he like? He liked, uh, oh, he, he loved, uh, this was funny, he loved Moms Mabley, Red Fox albums. He had Jonathan Winters. He had uh, Bob Newhart. I mean, he had a lot of different comedy albums. And and then um, he went and watched him perform a lot. He went to the Latin Casino up in Cherry Hill, and he went to um, a place down in Atlantic City that was... Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it, it was sort of like a leftover from the vaudeville circuit, but it was it was a, a very popular nightclub down there, and he saw like Red Fox and Moms Mabley, and he saw different acts down there. So uh, he was he was interested in what, and he loved comedy. And if, if a comic came on the Ed Sullivan show, shut your mouth, don't make a sound, because <laughs> my dad wants to hear every word. 
So yeah, he, had, he was a big fan of comedy, and so I, I naturally grew up with, uh, you know, I, I loved loved it. Yeah, was it were, were there comics that that really uh, got your attention early on? Uh, with the, I imagine well, it be the mid '60s or something. Yeah, so. you know, we talked about it a little bit before. You know, I kind of spent the summer of '72 in in uh, uh, living in with a with a family in town, one of the only Jewish families in town, the Tabs, and uh, they had Lenny Bruce albums and they had some different kind of albums. A comedy albums which I hadn't heard before and then we got in George Carlin's Class Clown which was huge and then right on the heels of that sort of like Robert Klein comes out with an album Child of the 50s Child of the 50s and all these and I would just you know eat this stuff up Martin Maul I got into Martin Maul his funny songs that he had and I saw him live over at Wilmington around 74 and I saw I saw uh, 73 I saw uh, Carlin I saw around the same time I saw Klein I was going out myself to find these people and see them. You know, I yeah. saw uh, Steve Martin in my first year of law school, like 75, down in D.C. wasn't quite huge yet. It was, uh, it was about 1,500 people. And then, the, you know, so I was getting to it. Yeah, I was into it. Yeah. But, I mean, this at this point, I mean, the, the stand-up comedy circuit was still, it was still there was really no, there was no circuit. evolving. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. Was no, there were no comedy clubs. There were, there were these showcase clubs, which I didn't know about. In New York City and L.A., and that was it. College campuses, I guess. Was yeah, these the guys would work in the. They, they would they would train. Yeah, that's it. You know, you think about theaters, Klein and and Carlin. They weren't doing theaters where people were coming out like today. They were most of the stuff was campuses. They yeah. did mostly colleges, and um, so it was not it was not like the comedy clubs in every corner like it is today. I mean, comedy clubs are like Starbucks. I mean, you know, every little town. <laughs> look, Pennzoil has once a month that some bar does a comedy night there. Oh, really? Or they bring some comics down from Philly or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so it wasn't like that. Your, your book is, is such a is such a sort of, uh, it, it's thick with details and observations and everything. And and, and in that is, is sort of like a whole sort of, uh, you really get the economics of, of uh, comedy down and how it really took the, you know, the building of these clubs to really make the, uh, the, uh, the, the workers come, you know. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it is. When, once, once this thing exploded, I mean, you went from, like, I was counting, like, 1979 when I moved to New York City. About 400, maybe 500 tops comics in the whole country. We're talking about from the top. Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, Carlin, down to the bottom. From the Catskills comics to Vegas comics. Four or 500 comics. There are four or 500 comics in Austin, Texas now. <laughs> I mean, you can't understand the explosion there was. Yeah, yeah. And, when these clubs opened, they were packed immediately because it was the hottest thing. I mean, the club started opening in 1980. So they would go, when can you come back? When can you come back? We'll pay you more. I mean, the, the, my fees started doubling and doubling. And, and, and you, you know, by the mid-80s, I was making five grand a week. And I wasn't a draw. The clubs were packed. They just needed good comics. To, there weren't a lot of comics who could go do 45 minutes an hour, an hour. Plus... They didn't care how much the people drank. This is before Mothers Against Drunk Driving changed the ethos for drunk driving. Yeah. They were like, do as long a show as you want. We want to sell liquor. You know, do a two-hour show. I know with bands, the insult was, uh, we're not going to book them. Uh, their audience drinks water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were comics you never heard of that were road dogs back then, and they sold more liquor than anybody because they drank with the audience, like Ali Joe Prater, who I talked about in the book, or John Fox. And those guys, you'd go into the bar, the bar, the club owners, like so bar owners, we were liquor pimps to what we were, but they go, <laughs> oh, Ali Joe was just here, he sold $11,000 worth of liquor. I go, well, I'm not, my liver's not ready for that. <laughs> 
go do all my damage when I get off the stage. Women are better at dealing with their feelings than guys are. I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, women commit less violent crimes than guys do, because they can sit with their feelings longer and think them out. See, guys, we usually get a feeling we act out immediately. That's why you'll see two guys getting a fist fight over a parking spot in a flash, you know? Just like, that's my parking spot. No, that's my parking spot. Territory, fist, boom, you know? <laughs> women commit less violent crimes because they get a feeling they just like, they can think it out, you know? I'm, I'm sure women have just as many murderous thoughts as men, but they think it out, you know? I like to kill him. But if I did... I'd have to get a babysitter for the trial. He's just not worth the hassle. Well, you, you say that, you know, they just plug these comedians in, but, you know, along the line, you were really learning the craft of uh, of a joke writer i remember you know so clearly seeing you on merv griffin as a kid i mean i was very yeah. aware of and you you know looking back like you kind of remind me of uh, i was going to say a plumber maybe maybe an electrician's better but like you really knew how to lay down the structure that was like going to get the water or the electricity to the spot you, you yeah, delivered yeah, laughs yeah you learn like a craftsman. How, you learn how, look when i first started i, I didn't have the economy but we had an advantage of we were so new and fresh that people it wasn't like now they talk about jokes per minute and comics have to be tight and and bang and bang and bang that became a sort of a thing which is changing now a little bit but it became a thing when we first started they go as long as you're interesting if there's a joke in there every couple of minutes we're happy because they haven't <laughs> seen it before so they have nothing to compare it with when you were going to had to get on the tonight show with johnny carson which was a big thing back then you knew you had to tighten it up yeah. you knew you had to like get those jokes structured and get it right and i realized i knew how to write a joke before i wrote my first joke because i've been funny for so long been around it for so long that I, in my first five minutes that i did when i did this coffee house that buddy of mine dragged me down to in 1977 in dc i wrote a joke that's still good today and you got did it, it you got it with you i got it with me <laughs> <laughs> but I wrote this joke, and it, and it, of course, I, I performed it terribly because I just memorized my material and just was like a robot trying to get it out. But I can perform. I perform it today in clubs just as a joke, joke to do it, yeah. and it works. Okay, look, I said you can always tell who's going to win a wrestling match just by the introductions. In professional wrestling, will be in a far corner from Teaneck, New Jersey, at 187 pounds in your orange trunks, Ed Arnold, his opponent from parts unknown. At 417 pounds, wearing a bumper from a 1955 Buick on his head, Haystacks Calhoun. <laughs> Same thing in high school wrestling. In the 130-pound weight class from Oak Crest Regional High School, two-time New Jersey State Champion, two-time Christmas Tournament Champion, undefeated senior Captain Bob Siraki. His opponent from Pennsville High School, former student council treasurer. <laughs> It's, you know, you, you, you know the twist. You know the twist you got to make because you've been doing these things all your life. Putting a little twist to the story. Putting a little twist, that little spin to it. That yeah. little surprise. <laughs> but you just learn how to tighten. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's, uh, there's some, you know, polishing that happens from being in front of audiences and really 
knowing when you, what gets a response and what doesn't get a response. You, you, you learn. You it's learn. A, there's a whole beat and yeah, rhythm and a musical I, thing. You know? You're right. I was getting paid to learn my craft when this road opened and these clubs started opening and I was going in there. But I was so hungry for it. I was, I was, I put it out there, and the audience responds. They respond. That was Rob. That was part of Robin Williams' genius. The audience knew he wanted the laughs more than anybody else. He just wanted them, and when they know you want them, they'll give them to you. <laughs> I watched guys like Sinbad, who really had no material. You know, he had no material back in the '80s, and you'd watch the audience laughing at him. You go, "He's got no material." <laughs> he was my buddy. Man called him a charismatician. He's a charismatician. Yeah, he, he's a, he's one of those guys that just has that presence. That's, that's right. That's right. And the audience know, knows. Right it's away. a likability, yeah. and they, they just know that, that. So that was a big part of it. When, when was your first, uh, you know, kind of break on TV? When was that? When did that? Uh, My first TV was actually Evening at the Improv. Was the first shot I did on television. I remember that show. They, yeah. they brought us out um, from New York City in 1981. I stayed at the Tropicana. <laughs> The Tropicana Hotel was a famous rock and roll hotel on Sun. It was on Santa Monica Boulevard. Guests stay at the Tropicana, right? and I was so excited to stay there, partying so hard that a punk rocker banged on my door at five in the morning. Right, punk rocker with a mohawk and a leather. He goes, "Hey man, can you turn it down?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, maybe tomorrow." And I met Tom Waits at a at the at the those Dukes. Uh, restaurant was there oh, wow. and so I came in I had a leather jacket and t-shirt I was all hung over breakfast one morning and I, and I saw him sitting there and I just blurted it out like Tom Waits like you just don't expect to see him you know <laughs> it's like 1981 I just got out to LA I'm like Tom Waits and so then I sat down to order and he brought his plate of food over he said hey can I sit with you man and he said what are you in a band what band you know? I said no I'm a comedian 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 what do you do with that and he's like you know just curious just asking questions that's great yeah Wow. But that was at uh, Evening the Improv, and then I did my first Tonight Show in 84. Wow. I remember the, the show you mentioned in your, in your book as well that was around at the time, Make Me Laugh. That was the, that was the show that was on the late 70s, which in, was syndicated. It wasn't syndicated on the East Coast. It was big in the Midwest. We had it at Channel 48. Channel 48, which was a UHF, uh-huh. which was a small band. You know, you had to be within 30 feet of the Ben Franklin Bridge <laughs> to pick it up. It really wasn't South Jersey. It was like, you got snow. I remember like holding the thing and watching Monty Python back in oh, the late yeah. 60s because they were on UHF, right? Yeah. And you literally had to hold that little round antenna and stand in front of a TV <laughs> to get the reception to actually watch it. But uh, yeah, I mean that was a all those were, were great forums for stand-up comedians. Yeah, yeah. There was Norm Norm Cosby's uh, comedy shop. Yeah. That was also a syndicated show that was on. But then the the cable networks that came out, Evening the Improv on A and E Arts and Entertainment. Yeah. That was huge because it it was a comedy club. See, um, comedy shop was sort of like a sort of almost like a Johnny Carson show, but the the comedy club was it just epitomized. It was actually displayed on evening at the improv because they'd show the comedy club they'd, it, the people drinking and then you walk up to the stage and so these comedy clubs were open then these young comics were being seen on evening at the improv and then you go oh can you go see it at our hometown there's one here in columbus ohio there's one here in atlanta georgia and that was syndicated all over the country because it was on cable everybody's getting cable back then yeah yeah and popularizing the idea of the, the, the comedy club being right, someplace you right, can go hang out right yeah it uh, became our generation's date night too because our generation is getting older, and they were, you know, you couldn't go to rock concerts for your date, and rock concerts are becoming you know, like more problematic anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the comedy club became the date night thing. 
did you? You must have had a feel, sort of just walking out on a stage, whether this was going to be a good audience or a bad audience. Like, what, what, what were the signs of of both these things? Do you yeah. think? Some sometimes you just I'd listen to a little bit. I always had my Walkman on and blasting music because I wanted to isolate and get get ready, psyched up. But I'd listen to a little bit of the comic and just see what they were doing and what the audience was reacting to and and how they were. But I back then the audiences were so hungry for it. It was such a new thing and. It was like hip, right? It was like the coolest thing that I I don't remember going, oh, this is going to be a dead audience. I mean, once you get out of the big towns, there were some one-nighters. You go, yeah. oh, boy, we're in trouble here. <laughs> These people should not be having comedy. You know, like their idea of humor is like hitting somebody with a head with a stick. <laughs> but the, all the big cities, it was just, you know, you just knew. You yeah. just It was hot. An incredible amount of traveling you had to do back back then yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to get rental cars. You know, that was the only beginning of that. I had to lie about. This is when you had to actually have income to get a credit card. Oh yeah. Like I had the I had the woman who owned the uh, at the Improvisation in New York, uh, uh, Silver Friedman, who was Bud Friedman's ex, had her lie saying I was managing the Improv and making one hundred twenty five thousand a year, which is about a hundred thousand dollars more than I was making. <laughs> So you get rental cars, and, and you fly these cheap airlines. People's Express, you ever hear of that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. They used to fly $39 from New York City to virtually anywhere in the Midwest. So $39 to Detroit, $39 to Cleveland. doesn't matter if the distance is different. Well, you must, I mean, it must get a great sense of the, the pulse of the nation to really be hitting all these towns and, and everything. I mean, the, the 80s must have really came to life for you in a, it, well, in a unique well, they, way. These places I was going to I'd never been to before. Yeah. I'd had been, you know, I'd go up in Pennsville. I, I lived in New York City, and, and I was living in D.C. and then New York City, and then all of a sudden I'm in Cleveland or I'm in Columbus, Ohio, or I'm in Detroit or Minneapolis, Chicago, all these places I wanted to for the first time. And, and of course, you know, a little bit of alcohol. And of course, you drink because you're meeting all these new people, and you're, you're just trying to get it in and get uh, accepted as fast as possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and the book, it, there's a... There, there is a sense of addiction that sort of like you know, goes into the Ooh. book a bit, but it, but it's it's interesting. It, I, I feel like the addiction is both the laughs that you're pursuing and the, the sort of drug use that well, sort that, of uh, that was comes the laughs was the it, side. man. I didn't get into the business for any other reason for the laughter, and when I got in trouble and I talked about this in the book is when I started you know, things started happening in my career and then you start expecting things and started going, what am I getting out of this? And when people started jumping ahead of you or getting their sitcom. And I go, where's my sitcom? You know, I had like five pilots that didn't turn into sitcoms. Or where, where, how come I'm not getting this or not getting that? And then when I started putting those things before the laughter, that's when I got in trouble. That's when I got expectations, then I got disappointments, and then bitterness. Yeah. And so by the 90s, that was a problem for me because I'd, I'd lost my purpose. I didn't get into this being an actor. You know, you talked about being in, wanting to be in drama in, in high school or doing plays. I never thought about that at all. Yeah. I was like a pseudo jock, a bad jock, and then I didn't know what else I was doing. I got seduced by the laughter totally, and that, and once I got back to that, everything was fun again. Yeah, yeah. Was it? I mean, I guess at some point you sort of saw it as a career path. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Because when I got into it, I didn't see it as a career. I just go, where can I get more laughter? They go, go to New York City. There are more there are comedy clubs up there, and there are guys doing this full time. I say guys, men and women doing this full time. So I go, oh, that's where I got to go. I wasn't thinking. Well, that'll take me to here. There was no career path that I saw. I was just following the laughter. Where can I get more laughter? It was really my drug.
Arguments come out of nowhere. Have you ever been waking in the middle of the night by the other person? Wake up, wake up. I had a nightmare about you. We were driving in the desert and you just left me there. Go back to sleep, I'll come pick you up. As soon as I finish fighting a monster in my dream, I'll come back. One of the, the incidents that, that, that you uh, write about in the book uh, is uh, being on Johnny Carson, you know, especially the first couple times you've really <laughs> made the uh, the grade. I mean, that's what every comic wanted, you yeah. know, that was, and and yet uh, it, at first there was sort of a, it seemed like it might be a short run for you as a yeah, guest on right, Carson. Yeah, yeah. You had, you had uh, it sounded like two appearances that sort of went both ways there yeah, at one point. Yeah, I barely got back. Uh, I ended up doing like 14 or so, 16, something like that. But at first one I did 80, 84 I managed to quit drinking and doing coke. Coke was my big problem back then for about a week before the show. But I broke out in shingles. I didn't even know what they were. I went in to see a doctor. I had these blisters on my hip and my butt, you know. And uh, and the doctor goes, how old are you, man? I go, what do you mean? He goes, that's an old man thing. Shingles. You broke out in shingles. I was so nervous about doing stressed, the Tonight Show. Yeah. So stressed. I actually had medicated pads uh, when I went out to my first Tonight Show. <laughs> so first one was great. I did great. And they were like, you're going to come back in like a month or two. Uh, Johnny loved you. You meet John. I met Johnny. You got a picture. And, and Coming through that curtain. I mean, that must have been a moment huge, for you. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Huge. The guy that pulls the curtain aside, he's like, eh, there are about 20 million people watching. Good luck. You know, <laughs> Apparently, he says that to everybody. But, you know. Uh, yeah, Extra couple shingles before he yeah, yeah. took a step. But you knew. But you knew. Because and I, I, not only that, more importantly to me, every comic I could do was watching. Because we used to watch each other. I mean, every one of these comedy clubs have a TV, and and people, the others, they knew. They go, Scheidner's on tonight. All the comics would gather around, TV would be on, they'd all be watching it. The, the, I want acceptance from my peers. I want them to go, hey, man, you you did it, and you kicked it. You kicked it well. Yeah. And so um, that was important. And you get all these calls, you know, like the message machine fills up with people. And I got one from Seinfeld before I did my first Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, you've already hit the home run. You're just rounding the bases. Don't trip. It doesn't look good for the fans. <laughs> Great metaphor, right? And um, uh, this, so I come back on the second one. I cannot quit drinking. I managed to quit doing cocaine the night before my shop. How, how many months later is this? That you're yeah, a month or two later. Really? Like a couple months later. So they're, they're really eyeing you. To, to yeah, yeah, you yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, I didn't. I didn't come back as fast as like a Stephen Wright who came back like two days later. But, legendary, right? Legendary, moment, yeah. right? But I, 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 you know, and it looked like you know, go, you'll probably do couch. You'd probably do panel this time, Johnny. We really liked you the first time. So, um, I'm hanging out with Sam Kennison a lot. Uh-uh. Now you remember Sam? <laughs> he was the dark angel of it. And uh, so the night before, we we're like looking at, we we're talking about because you do your set over and over. You have this proved material, and you basically. are are yanking bits from different parts of your act and spot welding them all together with these weird segues, you know, like the one joke will be about water skiing. You go, you know, when you're, you're water skiing, your hair gets wet. And, you know, I was at the barbershop the other day. You know, you just got these <laughs> convoluted segues. But um, Sam was like, you know, this is not edgy enough, man. You got to get edgier. You need to be edgier, you know. About doing that bit you're doing about, uh, about Jesus and the agent, you know. And uh, so I go in the next day to do the tonight show and i'm in the my dressing room and jim mccully was the booker and he comes back there a couple hours before the show and i said i want to change the last couple of jokes i'm doing to this other bit he goes what other bit i go i have this bit 
uh, Sam and I had gone see um, this band called Striper. They were a heavy metal band for Jesus. Yeah. This is back in like, you know, again, this is 84. They used to throw Bibles into the audience. Yeah, yeah. Everything. Well, they come out and they're little, they're like bumblebee outfits. I just remember like black and yellow. <laughs> Ridiculous. We were like howling at them. And the guy comes out and he opens up the concert and goes, you know, Jesus was the first rock and roller. Which then later that night I locked into the, you know, Jesus just was the, the son of God just put him in a show business. He's a rock and roller. He's got an agent. So I said, Jesus talking to his agent. And Sam loved this. And he was like, Hal, and I just spritzed this thing out. I go, Jesus talking to you. You got to get me out of hills and valleys. I'm dying out there. Book me into the temple. That's where the money, all the good headliners work the temple. He goes, Jesus, you got a very short memory, my young friend. I had you book temple last year, open Messiah night. What do you do? You walk in, you knock over the money changer's table. I can't get your book back in there. You got to go out and work some more of these things you're doing. The water, the wine, the walk, the water. This is good stuff. Like Moses, work your act. 40 years in the desert. He spent 40 years in the desert making a name for himself. I said, all right, nail me to a cross. You got something there. That's a closer. So I, in my crazed, maniacal sense, of purpose. They love religious humor. Yo, right? yeah, yeah. I, I tell this to McCulley, right, in the dressing room. And he just stares at me. He goes, you can't do that on a Tonight Show. It's 1984. You're not doing Jesus material on a Tonight Show. There's Catholics watching. Yeah, they're... <laughs> you know, I go, well, how about this? So then I wear him down. And I, I had a couple of bits about the first artificial heart recipient was named uh, uh, Barney Clark. And, uh, and I had bits about that and the defibrillator paddles they used to resuscitate. So heart attack victims. So I had a couple jokes about that. I talked him in and let me do those. He goes, all right, do those. Do those instead or whatever it was I took out. <laughs> so I do the Tonight Show. I do it. I go out there and, and it, it works great. I, I'm feeling really good. They all, all the jokes work great. A nice big finish. I turn look over to Johnny to see if I was going to get the sign to come over to do the panel. And instead... Johnny's got his pencil tapping on the desk and not looking at me. Now, you had three signs he was going to give you. Waving you over, come on over to the panel. That's what you want. Always with a big smile. Right, big smile. Or, which was close, we give you the circle and the three fingers up going, A-OK, you did OK, you did OK, which means you're going to come back another time, but maybe not panel this time. Or, if he wasn't looking at you and just tapping his pencil on the desk, he hated it. You just got... (laughs) You got the trap door. That's why I have a trap door with a pit of sharks underneath you because you're done. And that's what I got. I was like, I walk back to the curtain. McCully grabs me, man. And he just hustles me into my dress room. Oh, my God. They hated it. Johnny hated it. I could tell he hated it. He hated it. Stay right here. Do not come out. And like hands me a beer. Just stay here. And he comes back a half an hour later. He goes, oh, my God. Johnny hated those heart attack jokes. I forgot. It's my fault because Johnny smoked like four packs a day and he had a morbid fear of heart attacks. So I'd like walk right into the swamp, man. <laughs> he said, he goes, you got to stay in your dressing room until Johnny leaves the studio. You cannot be seen by Johnny. You're done. I thought I'm done with the Tonight Show. Wow. That must have been crushing. Mm-hmm. Especially after coming off, like, coming off a good set. Oh, yeah. I come off a good set. I thought it'd be great. And, uh, of course, the word gets out. Everybody's like, you know, the calls came in this, like, you know, immediately like, oh, too bad, man. Sorry, man. You know, like, but there's always that tinge of like <laughs> other comics calling. And I thought I was done. I go back out on the road and I bottomed out drinking and drugging and got sober. And about a year after that, this was like 85, somewhere in early 86, about a year after I got sober, um, 
Macaulay saw me at the Improv in New in in L.A. The Improv in L.A. He saw me and he was like, he came up to me afterwards. He said, "Man, your your t- whole attitude is different. You're performing so well now, and this new material you're doing is just great." I was doing a lot more of like men women relationship stuff, and uh, I'm gonna try to get you back on a Tonight Show. He said, "I'm gonna try to get you back on." I know it's crazy. I don't know if I can or not, but I think Johnny will love what you're doing now. And um, so he said, "But you need to do like a Merv Griffin." first sort of like a rehab <laughs> like a rehab assignment for a pitcher go to the minor leagues see if you can <laughs> toss a game in the minors then we'll bring you back to the majors right so merv was the daytime so watched, watched a lot of merv so i go to do the merv is 86 i go to this merv griffin show and backstage the talent coordinator on that show was an australian named les sinclair really nice gentleman so he comes up to me backstage he says uh listen this audience today is all jewish people from a retirement home i mean it's almost entirely made up of those people in the audience i'm like why is he telling me this i'm just doing a merv shot it's real safe material i'm doing you know just real safe material i said i don't know why he's even telling it didn't make sense to me why he's telling me this so we got back behind the curtain i'm going i'm the next guest to come on you're behind the curtain waiting and merv is interviewing diane cannon actress he said, Diane, this movie you're doing? She goes, yes, Jenny's War is the name of the movie. Jenny's War is a very important movie. I'm so glad I did it. Let's watch a clip, Merv says. Let's watch a clip. And then on the monitors for a whole audience to see. Diane Cannon's now in this movie dressed up as a concentration camp <laughs> victim. And a Nazi in full-on Gestapo Nazi is beating her up. Interrogating her, whatever, beating her up. One of the more lovable character actresses there, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and that clip ends, and Merv goes, Oh, that was very, very good work. Very serious. Let's bring out our next entertainer. <laughs> you know, damn, uh, now the jokes of Rich yeah. Scheidner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have blonde hair, blue eyes. I might as well have goose stepped out onto the stage. Here comes the jokes. These people are in shock. They're thinking of loved ones they lost in a holocaust. It's a horror. It's, I, there's bombing. I mean, I did my first joke. I got nothing. I mean, nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's classic crickets and... Stifled and, sobs. Oh, it's just... It's like you can hear stifled sobs. That's right. That's what I I'm going for stifled sobs, this this set. If I can just keep them to a stifled sob, I'll be happy. But I just remember Seinfeld had said... Again, I'm quoting him, but he said, you know, if you don't... If a joke doesn't work on a Tonight Show or any kind of talk show set, don't panic. Just look in the camera, kind of smile and nod. Give them a chance to put the laughter in, and they'll fill it in with canned laughter later, and then move on. So I do that, but I'm doing that every joke. (laughs) did nothing, man. And every bit of me is going to run or break and start spritzing with the audience. You know, hey, what's going on? You know, just doing something. Hey, doing some audience work. Yeah, 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 doing audience work. What did you lose in the Holocaust? This is what's going through my mind as I'm doing joke after joke after joke is bombing. And every joke, I look at the camera and I just, the camera dead ahead of me, just nod, smile idiotically. And uh, it's, it's, I walk off. I'm like Albert Brooks in Network News. I'm just, Water's gushing on me, sweat, flop sweat. Just bomb, man. Bomb, and I come off weak need, man. Les Sinclair goes, I try, I didn't know what to say. I'm so sorry. There's nothing we could do. I knew it was, that might happen, oh, but I'm so sorry. And I was like, oh, it's okay, Les. Uh, I'll be moving out of show business pretty soon anyway. And I thought I was done. I, I didn't drink, and I didn't do drugs, which is my big lesson then. You know, people who were friends of me who helped me stay sober said, look, man, you don't know what's going to happen. I go, I know what's going to happen. They go, you don't know. You don't know anything. Just let it go. You did what you're supposed to do. You can't control the results, and that's that. 
A couple nights later, Jim McCauley comes up to me to the improv in New York. I mean, improv. I keep saying New York, but it's improv in L.A. Mm-hmm. McCauley comes up to me, and he goes, uh, I heard what happened at Murph. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Look, you know, I'm moving. Don't worry. I just haven't got it all worked out yet, but I'm getting out. I can't go back to Pennsville, but I'll be moving to someplace. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. You did great. You did, you did your job. You didn't panic. You didn't blame the audience. You did your material. You did your time. They're going to put it after later, all of it. You're ready to do Tonight Show. Don't worry about it. I've got, I, got a, I got a date for you on the Tonight Show. And I did my next Tonight Show. And then I did like, whatever, 14 more after that. Yeah. But, make, I, but I bombing on Murph. <laughs> and the thing is, Dan, they did put the laughter in. I have the tape. <laughs> and you see me do a joke. I look at the camera, look dead ahead, I smile and nod, and then you hear laughter. But the thing is, they do audience shots. They forgot they still shouldn't be doing audience shots. So there'd be audience shots, and your people would just be gap-mouthed staring, just in shock. You go, Where's the laughter coming from? I don't see anybody laughing. Wow. So you survived, and you probably made it to the panel, didn't you? Uh, oh, yeah, I did. Uh, a, you know, I was one of those guys that if there was time, I'd do panels. So probably of the whatever, I did two three and then 14 more whatever i did more i'm like half panel half not yeah, and usually you had a little you know of your own jokes that you worked into the panel conversation the panel was he tried to do a story or something but he lead you into him it wasn't anything like you i wasn't like i tell you ones i saw were totally organic yeah like stephen wright's first time when he just on the spur called him over and you could tell that was there was nothing planned there yeah i was watching that night and that was a brilliant brilliant thing is because Stephen Ray had this spacey look and he goes what do you think right now he goes I'm thinking of all these guys back in Boston man you know <laughs> it's like just really funny and natural yeah he was a, he was a, a phenomenon oh my there. god I remember everybody yeah he did it tonight show and they brought him back like two days later yeah yeah and then before he just before he left town I think they yeah to before him back exactly yeah, yeah. and he's a guy that jumped I mean he literally jumped out of, I don't think he ever played the clubs that way I mean he was a draw instantly right in the, in the theaters into yeah. I mean he was but he was different and brilliant and deserved all of it. Good guy. A good guy. I mean, there's only so far I'll go with any of this technology, to be honest with you. There's you know, certain things. A friend of mine said, hey, won't you follow me on Twitter? I'm like, follow him on Twitter. I'm not that interested in my own life. <laughs> Give a rat's ass what he had for breakfast. Because <laughs> every time you turn around, there's another social website or something you're supposed to join. Remember MySpace? Remember how big MySpace was? Just like a couple of years ago, everybody's like, you can get on MySpace, Rich. You gotta get on MySpace, man. You go to MySpace now, nobody's on MySpace. It's a cyber ghost town. The only people in MySpace are sexual predators and police officers posing as 14-year-olds. That's the only people there. Everybody's over at Facebook. Biggest time suck ever invented. I go there just to check something out. Five hours later, I find myself farming. See, I hope my cyber crops come in. Because you get addicted to the likes. You know, I post something, and I kind of check every five minutes to see if anybody liked it. Then I pay attention to see if, if they like mine, because I like their last post, you know, post. They're like, if they're not liking my post, and I'm liking their post, I'll befriend them. That's what I'll do, I'll befriend them. That's become like a mob threat. I'll defend you and your whole family. 
I mean, you, you know, really rubbed shoulders with a lot of other talented well, people. Well, the but- book, the book has, you know, I I worked with all these guys: Leno, Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman. I mean, I had experiences with all these guys: Sam Kennison, Bill Hicks. Bill were- Hicks was the name I, that was coming up. I still talk to young people who, like, will stop me and say, ah, "I listened to Bill Hicks the other day. My <laughs> mind was blown by that. Like, he still packs a packs a punch." Yeah, and 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 when you think about it, it's like. He's basically like 25 years past now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, 93, 94, what is it? I forget. But anyway, he, and he's still his material is that good. I mean, because he he was willing to walk the audience to, to he was willing to, most comics are afraid to lose anybody. Yeah. Right? And But he was willing to, to whittle away people to get his core audience. He was willing, if you walk out, you didn't get what he's doing, he was fine with it. Uh-huh. He just wanted to keep the people who got him and build from there, which is completely inverse of most other comics like i want to keep everybody here and just add some more people he had a message he really wanted to get across i mean there was something (laughs) prophetic about him an anarchist message yeah yeah yeah, it was yeah he i remember we the first time i saw that flash he was a middle act and he and he was my middle act for a little road tour we did at the southwest Tulsa, Oklahoma City. It was depraved. We were drinking and drugging like crazy. Stand up, like call. You know those those preachers that would we'd call up those TV preachers and harass them. <laughs> and uh, we were getting a real good, real good health. We had like the bowels up, man. We were angry, and so we did. One night we were in, uh, I think it was whatever Tulsa, you know. And Bill was my middle, and he got into Elvis. He was making fun of Elvis. I mean, he had the best Elvis stuff, man. The fat Elvis, you know, <laughs> on stage talking about the scarves and the water. Remember that? And um, and got into Elvis and Jesus. Now, he was different. Sam Kennison was a believer. All of his Jesus material made fun of Jesus' followers. Yeah. But Bill was not a believer. And he mocked the whole legend of Jesus or whatever it was. And he walked people. This was Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, the Bible Belt buckle. And he was laying it out. He was going against, you know, Jesus and Elvis, the two biggest things down there. <laughs> he went after them both viciously, man, and literally walked a packed house. There were probably 10, 15 people left. When he realized his time was up and looked down and realized there were only 10, 15 people left, and he goes, all right, I'm going to bring up the headliner. Now. And I'm, I'm in the back room laughing. I mean, bro, I didn't care. It was like, it was... How about that Bill Hicks? Yeah. And he goes, he brings me up and he kind of looks at me stupidly like, sorry, man, sorry. You know, like, sorry. I go, you know. But that was the first time I saw him do that. And I went, he's, because he had, he'd been like a regular act up to that point. Oh, really? You know, he'd, he'd not, he'd not done anything different. To, he'd done Letterman show. He'd done Letterman show. He was one of the early on in Letterman. So he was not a guy who was against the grain. At a certain point, he started Going that way. He was a young guy. He was 10 years younger than me. Yeah, there's a but real he was evolution. Older soul, man. Yeah, real evolution he, that happened with him with what he talked about as, yeah, as his career went on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. To so, the end with him, you know, facing cancer and giving those last uh, those last shows. Oh, man. When he got cancer, um, you know, he was complaining a lot about his stomach hurting. And I always thought it was the crappy road food. He was on the road a lot, and I wasn't on the road so much then. So we'd talk on the phone at the time. And Bill would love to talk on the phone. He would, like, call you up and say, What are you watching? Turn on Channel 7. Let's watch this together. And he'd like to talk while the show was on and comment on it. And I wasn't a phone junkie. I couldn't hang along with him. But I, I, I did talk to him. And he goes, his stomach is bothered. I said, Bill, just go see a doctor. I said, I don't have a doctor. Just go to the emergency room or the hospital. You've got a problem with your stomach. 
I think you're eating crap. Stop eating the comedy f- club food, you know, too much <laughs> deep fried cheese or whatever you're eating. And uh, so one day he says, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to the emergency room. To see. And then he calls back. And he, every, all day, the next couple of days, he kept calling back. And my wife at the time, after it was over, because we kept doing jokes. He called up with a different thing. Yeah, they're doing a doing a uh, X-rays. Oh, they found a spot on the X-rays. Then the next call is uh, they're going to do a biopsy. The next call, the biopsy turned out to be cancer. And we keep doing jokes every time. And I remember as this went on, my wife was like, "You guys just keep doing jokes. You know, he's got cancer." I go, "We don't know how to deal with it any other way." Yeah. That's how we dealt with it. I couldn't just start break down crying and going, "Cancer? You're 32 years old. What do you mean cancer?" And that was it. I mean, he was going fast. It was pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Which, Pennsville, New Jersey, one of the centers of, from what I understand. Oh, every kind of intestinal cancer. Yeah, yeah. Because of the, you know, your dad and every other dad working in those chemicals, man. Yeah, yeah. They, the, the story I'd heard recently was DuPont's never really going to move from that spot. They can't. They, they'll never be able to clean it up. It's a yeah. super fun cleanup. If they do, they'll keep a skeleton crew there just so they can keep it open, quote unquote, open. Yeah, yeah they can't. We used to swim. There's a place called Greenwaters. I don't know if you ever went out there when uh-huh. you were kids. A place called Greenwaters. It was back road, like through deep water, some back road by the deep water truck stop. You uh-huh. drive through the woods in this little dirt road, and you end up at this pond that literally glowed at night. We we never even thought about it. We'd swim in it. We had a Tarzan swing to dive in. Everybody back there and drink. You know, it called Greenwaters. It was just a chemical runoff pond from DuPont. Uh-huh. And it was all phosphorus in there and chemicals. That's why it glowed at night. Nobody thought about this stuff. We swam in the river a mile south of the affluent pipes, dumping whatever they dumped into the Delaware River back in the 60s. Used to water ski in there. Every summer, we'd get boils, literally boils, open sores, dysentery, and we just thought that was part of summer fun. Nobody went, oh, DuPont's is doing this. That's why the river's dead. Yeah, I lived 50 feet away from... uh, the dike, which was the chemical the dump. Yeah, the dike. <laughs> and when we were when we were kids, they always told us it's best not to play out there. Yeah. But they never told us why. And a lot of two headed muskrats. <laughs> yeah, it was only years later. That, yeah. They're good eating. Yeah. Uh, it's only only years later did I realize there was a, just a small liner there, and then like all the chemical waste from up and down the Delaware and Dupont was all, you know, right in our backyard there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So we bond over that in New Jersey. We bond over our <laughs> shared waste stories. Um, uh, in, in the book, it's interesting. There's a couple of things that were interesting to me. And, and, and uh, in some ways, looking back, it sort of reflected on your humor. You, you were, were very... Uh, you were really sort of a crowd pleaser with your humor. You you weren't. It wasn't about your st- distinct personality or, or or the specifics of a really unusual right. mindset. It was really about right. reaching out to to everybody's situation. And you really were nuanced and thoughtful and really knew how to pull uh, things that really whatever whatever big. Um, but when I, when I was reading your book, the details uh, that I expected to get to reading the book, both the story of your father that sort of goes under there and the sort of conflict with your father, and also because you did so much about men and women, I thought we were going to hear a lot about Carol Leifer, your your first <laughs> wife, who uh, was a, is a wonderful comic as well, who yeah. I remember seeing all the time. Yeah. And yet, uh, for somebody who talks so much about relationships, there was very little about your relationship well, with her. Well, you know, I had to be circumspect about what I could reveal and not reveal and i could send you a lot of stories that i wrote put on facebook afterwards that didn't uh-huh. have that in there what a power couple i mean yeah yeah we were, you know, look, it's so funny Here, i'll tell you this story 
So we were both stand-up comics. And we'd go on the road and work together. And it, it was, we were competitive. We were both trying to, whatever we were trying to do, you know, just hungry for as much laughs as we could get. And, and I remember one time uh, in Atlanta, you know, we go down to Atlanta. And we're flying down to Atlanta for the first time. And I'd been down there already. And now I'm bringing Carol back. And she'd be the middle act. And she, she's, we're flying to Atlanta. She goes, listen, we're going in the south. Now, she's never been south of New Jersey, really. <laughs> Washington, D.C. is as far as south. She goes, I, they're not going to get me. I'm Jewish from Long Island. They're not going to get me down here. You're going to have to do most of the show. I'll probably only do like five, ten minutes and get out. Because <laughs> I don't want them to, you know. You know she's just thinking... You know, Anne Frank, she's thinking she's going to be Anne Frank hiding in the hotel. So I didn't say anything, right, because I knew. I knew it was crazy. And as we pointed to the hotel parking lot, there's a kosher deli right there. I said, Carol, there I was trying to tell her, there are Jewish people down here a lot. And the club was packed with them early on. These clubs, the, the, the biggest fans of comedy were Jewish people. And they would come out and really support these clubs. So Carol gets on stage, man, and she bites into him, and she realizes right off the bat, man, this is a kosher audience, and she's killing. Now she don't want to get off stage. Five minutes, forget, man. They're hitting the light with her, and she's running over the light. You know, she's going longer and longer. And I'm in the back of the room. Every time she gets a big laugh, I'm going, close with that one. Close with it. And I'm saying it out loud. Close with it. So Jeff Foxworthy, young Jeff Foxworthy, was sitting there, and I'm in the back of the room saying this and he says hey man you know take it easy shook it off soon I go, you take it easy that's my wife <laughs> he likes telling that story so we we're in we're in uh we move out to la 82 together she's doing a pilot called toast of manhattan so we had this agent martin gage he says uh he sends us over to uh, he was both your agents yeah he was both our agents yeah, i could be problem right that's there, problem maybe. there's a lot of problems coming up so he <laughs> he sends us over to uh again i can't remember the guy's name some manager Right, and Harvey Elkin, right, and Har this guy, guy who's a manager. So we go meet this guy, Harvey Elkin. He says, he says, what I see, he looks at us. We're, again, meeting him together. He says, I see Nichols and May. <laughs> it's the reverse, you know, in this case, the guy is Goyam, and the girl is Jewish, but Nichols and May. <laughs> you guys form a team. If you form a team, I can get you so much work, you'll have sitcom, everything. You're a team. Still are a mirror in that, right. in that realm as well. Right. Natural. Right. It'll be unbelievable. So go out there and get an act together. An act. A duo act. <laughs> so we're like, oh, geez, we want to make it. This guy seems to be in show business and he's handled a lot of people, you know, so maybe we should do what he says. So we go back on the road. Next time we go on the road together, we're doing Warren, Ohio, Pittsburgh, a little, mid little Midwest three-week tour. First thing we do, we're going to uh, Warren, Ohio, and we work up some things to do together, little sketches to do together, and we're going to do some improv. We've both been taking improv, so we do a little improv exercises, and we'll do this. So she goes on stage, does her act. I do, then I follow the headline, and we leave. We both go short, so we leave time to play at the end together. Uh -huh. And I bring her on, and we, we play. We do our things, we play. Now, <clears throat> when it's over, I think, this is great. We did well. We got laughs. We did well. Carol's not happy. She goes, you got more laughs than me. And you were hogging and laughs. I, I, I thought we were a team. I thought we all got laughs. And it did not go well. She was not happy. So the next time, I actually have a review of Pittsburgh. So the Pittsburgh writes a review. Carol, review of Carol. And then her husband comes and closes the show, blah, blah, blah. And he tried to get her to come up and do improv at the end, but she would have nothing to do with it. That was the end of us as a team. That was it.
<laughs> romantically, it's yeah, as well. Yeah, well it, it, it's strained romance too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it was it was a problem because we were very competitive. I mean, we we'd be together. Some joke would come up and be like, "That'd be better for my act." No, it'd be better for my act. You know, it was it was a battle. We we were a showbiz couple in the purest sense because we were so insecure about where our careers were at the time, right? I mean, I'm, this is another story I didn't put in a book, but here you go. I'll give it to you, Dan. So I got seen for The Tonight Show in 84 when I did my first Tonight Show in New York at the Improv in New York. I had left Sam Kennison and I. I said, I don't want to be around for the Olympics. The Olympics were coming to L.A. in 84. I saw it was going to be a problem. It was going to be a lot of tourists that didn't speak English. The traffic was going to be a problem. I didn't want to be in L.A. for the Olympics. So I said, I'm going back to the East Coast for the summer of 84 and hang out in New York City. Kennison goes, I've never been to New York. I said, come on, Sam, come. So he comes and we go hang out in New York City. And I'm doing at the improvisation in New York on 44th and 9th one night. And Macaulay just happens to be there because he wanted to get out of L.A. too. For whatever reason, he says, I haven't seen you in a while, man. You're ready to do The Tonight Show. It gives me The Tonight Show. So Carol happens to be in New York for a week or two. We're hanging out. And, he, and Macaulay says, let's go talk about what you're going to do your material. You're set for The Tonight Show. I said, good. So we go to a bar. Carol, Macaulay, and I go to a bar. So we're drinking. <laughs> and we're talking about me, my set, what material that he had just seen that might be good for The Tonight Show. All of a sudden, Carol's kicking me under the table. Shinning me, man. Just bang, bang, bang. So Macaulay goes to the bathroom. She goes, we got to go. Let's go. Let's get out of here. <laughs> okay, so Macaulay comes back. I said, listen, man, well, we got to go. It's late, you know. wasn't late at all. It was like 2 or 3 in the morning. I was going to be up all night doing coke. <laughs> but I'd lie to him. I said, we got to go, you know. He said, all right, man, don't worry about it. We're, we're, you're in. I got a date for you in August, and and uh, we'll, we'll work out the material. Man. It's all there. Don't worry about it. Okay, we leave. So we get out in the street. Carol's like, what's the deal, man? He was just talking about you the whole time. I haven't done a Tonight Show. I'm a comedian. Why does he look at me for the Tonight Show? And I was like, wait, this is my shot. And you've already done Letterman Show. She'd done Letterman before I did Tonight Show. Oh, yeah. So I go, you know, it's like we're so competitive that we couldn't let go for a second. This is just us back then in our insecurity and our youth in comedy that she couldn't let go and go. She couldn't listen to him talk about my act for long, thinking to herself, I want to do the Tonight Show. How about just turning me and going, and you'll do it next? Yeah, yeah. You know, if he turned to her and said anything. But that was one of the things Macaulay was good at. You know, he was good at tuning anybody else out. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I imagine he's right at the yeah, center because, of a lot yeah, of comedians because, trying because to Because he'd his be attention. in a bar. Yeah. If he was talking to you about your set, there'd be five comics hovering around trying to get into this conversation, <laughs> right? So he, would, he, he was good at just, like, ignoring... Like blinders, nobody in peripheral vision. Yeah, yeah. So that's what happened to Carol, and she got upset. Yeah. And I was, it was, it was a difficult relationship that way. Wow. Uh, how long were you together all together? Total. Yeah. Five years, I think. Five, five years. six years. Yeah. yeah, we were married in '81, uh-huh. and got divorced in early '86. I was just reading uh, one of the Saturday Night Live books, and uh, you know, she was a writer for there, and she gets to talk about her experiences there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. When when um, <clears throat> we were separating. Uh, she moved back to New York to work on Saturday Night Live, yeah. and uh, I stayed in L.A. Yeah, she always talked about it, you know being comfortable in the sort of boys' club atmosphere there, and uh, seeing pictures of her vacationing with you and the other comedians. I got the sense of her really being like, yeah, a guy's gal in that yeah, sort of way. She was very comfortable that way, and you had to be if you were going to make it there because there were very, very few female comics. I mean, if you look before 
in the eighties there was an explosion amount of female comics, but before that there were so few. Yeah, you can name them individually. I mean, in the seventies, you think back, you go, "Wow, there was like besides the established car stars of Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers, Tody Tody Fields. Tody Fields was also already by the sixties. But I'm just saying, seventies comics. There's like Elaine Boozler. Yeah, and yeah. then there's Elaine Boozler and Elaine Boozler. <laughs> you can't even think well, other than Lily Tomlin, who was a star. But I mean, just in terms of the oh, yeah. coming up through the ranks, there just were so few. You know, there were Lois Bromfield and, and Lois Dengrove, and there were a couple others that came along in the '70s, but '80s it, again it exploded with the amount of female comics. Yeah, and still, I mean, it exploded up to like ten percent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still. I, I I know. I hear you know women comics still talk about well, you know, the problems they, they have these to problems of, push of, through of, yeah. of the of the sexual harassment. I hear a lot of stories still of that, and and club owners who go, I can't book two women on a show, which is laughable. It's uh, idiotic. Yeah. They wouldn't say that you can't book two guys. <laughs> But there's I still always, these problems. Right? I always think about it. I'm a, I do a jazz radio show, and uh, if I played all-male jazz artists, nobody would say a word. But if I played two or three female artists in a row, people are like, whoa, is it an all-woman show you're doing now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, have, you, have you talked to Carol in recent years? Are you still in touch at all? Yeah, last time I talked to her, she was contacting me to say that uh, she was mentioning me in her book. Uh, that it, the book was already out, so uh. it was no like it was no like, hey, if, if it bothers you, I won't put you in. It's like, hey, heads up, you're in the book, you know. So I didn't bother to say it, tell uh. her because I kept her very circumspect in our book. Very, there was a lot of things that, um, a lot of other stories that I, I wrote about that I didn't put in. Yeah. Yeah. Everything changes as you get older. My, my definition of fun changes. When you're young, fun is like bungee jumping, skydiving. You know what my definition of fun is now? A nap. A nap where I dream about skydiving. That'd be a lot of fun. We went today. You went today? These are just jokes. I'm not really looking for recognition in your real life. But... Somebody in here is going bald too. You didn't see them go, I'm going bald over here. I can't connect with everybody individually. There's a lot of people and I don't have that much time. You're looking to run a couple of jokes by and get out of here with nobody getting hurt. That's all I'm looking for. I'm glad you did whatever you did today. I'm sure it was a meaningful experience. And God bless you, you're young. You'll do it again tomorrow. But I'm just, I'm just trying to get back through the traffic on the 405 and that's all I'm doing. The story of your father to me uh, sort of lingers over that, and I, I was wondering what sort of deal you made with yourself on uh, on how to. Uh, your father's still with us, isn't he? Yeah, and he read the book, and he was okay with it. I, I, he said in the book, you know, my dad gave me a, a really good work ethic, a sense yeah. of humor, and the ability to take a punch, and I mean that literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. What, um, my dad was a tough guy. Uh, he was a he was a guy who grew up on a farm, and he was working. I mean, his his parents were hiring him out as a farm laborer when he was eight years old. So he was working all of his life. And, and he was building a business, insurance business in our hometown. And uh, he didn't have a lot of patience. You know, when he'd come home, he was, he was quick, quick with discipline and, uh, and anger. And then he was drinking a lot when he was a young guy. And uh, we had a real problem. We had a real problem. We had fistfights growing up. And I, and I didn't win any of them. 
<laughs> but I got to a certain age where I just had to hit back. And uh, so I didn't have a good relationship with my father until after I got sober and I started changing things. But uh, it, was, it was a real problem. And, uh, but I wanted his approval, and that was important. And when I finally got that from doing The Tonight Show one night, um, because he didn't ever compliment me or like when I do The Tonight Show or Letterman Show or whatever, I never got a call from him saying, hey, I just saw you on that. And then one night I was doing a Tonight Show. It was about the late 80s. I think Rickles was, Don Rickles was the one. You know, Don Rickles always came out with the Matador music. I always looked at it like as a gunfighter. <laughs> I always like to view myself as a gunfighter coming into a new town, you know, establishing a reputation, quick gunfighter. And uh, so I looked over to Johnny at the end of my set to see if I was going to do panel or not. And they told me it might not be panel because Rickles had gone long, which is, you know, totally understandable. And I look over and... Um, Johnny just gave me the fingers, you know, the, 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 the fingers, you know, in the circle, A-OK sign. And so instead of just turning and walking back the curtain, I backed out like a gunfighter backing out of a saloon. I pulled my jacket back and I looked warily at the audience, you know, just kind of backing to the curtain. And Johnny starts laughing. You can hear it on the tape. And uh, they cut to Johnny. He's laughing and Ed McMahon goes, what's he doing? In reference to me. And Johnny, he's doing a gunfighter. It's great. <laughs> and my dad called me up the next day. First time he ever called me. And said, I saw you made Johnny laugh last night. My John, you know, Johnny was my dad's guy. He loved Johnny Carson. He goes, you're funny. You're, you're, my dad goes, you're, you're good at this. You know, which is a huge, it was a huge weight off my back. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's almost like he saw you through Johnny's eyes for a yeah, second. And yeah. Realized what he should be proud of, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, you know, somebody once said, and I heard this, I don't know who said it, but if you want to be happy with what you do for a living, find out what you're, one of your parents really likes to do but is not good at and do that well. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that kind of that's what I did. Huh. My dad was a funny guy, but he wasn't that good at it. He wasn't pro, that's for sure. You know? uh, it's, it's funny. You, you kind of don't get to your philosophy of humor in a way until towards the end of the book. And, and it, it sort of nailed down what part of your appeal, I think, was, to, was always for me when, it, when I saw you do stand up and and it's it's really great i had all these memories of of, of seeing you do stand up but uh, you know they were they were a bit hazy and and, and uh, realizing in recent years like oh my goodness i can pull so much of this up on youtube you can really yeah see yeah exactly a lot of it's on there yeah rich's act was uh, yeah was like there but you talk in in, in the uh, in the book about uh, the idea of, of punching up and punching down and Huge. you have you have a bit of a you know I, I recognize it from Pennsville a bit of a you know that sort of gruff assertive yeah. you know uh, yeah uh, uh, fire to you but but it, it's it's never you often see that you know as sort of a bullying thing and it was never no. a bullying thing with no. you it was never at, at, no. at other people's expense in, no. that, in that sort of way and uh, I, could you talk about how that yeah. sort of came uh, you know I I I always identified with the underdog and I naturally was drawn to that and I my philosophy of comedy my dad. He was, you know, he was pretty hard with that stuff, but he was, he was real, my dad was real, you know, I remember once I, I used the N-word when I was like 10 years old, maybe 9, 10 years old, we were fishing in Salem Creek, and I saw these black guys fishing, right, from the, from the shore, and I said something, look at us, and, you know, because I just heard the word a lot, and my dad literally knocked me out of the boat, knocked me out of the boat, when I crawled back into the boat, he said, there's only good people and bad people, never use that word again, never, don't use that, that way again. You know, and my dad was really like underdog thing was in my drill in my head, you know, like sort of. And I, I had that sense of like, don't make fun of things that people can't control. Like making fun of behavior was great, 
but not things they can't control, whether it's your religion, skin color, whatever. I just had a sense of that that was innate. And I remember uh, back in, 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 the, in the mid-'80s, a lot of guys were doing sort of what I would call homophobic material. There was still gay bashing going on. Not as big as it was in the 50s or 60s or 70s maybe, but there's still a lot of guys getting away with making fun of gay people because... That was sort of open season. Yeah. You, you, could, do, right? you could do a swishy character. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there was a lot of that going on, and I got angry with it, so I started doing mocking homophobics. I started doing that in my act, mocking them. And, um, and I was getting a lot of laughs with it. I was doing pretty well. because See, they could still do it because guys were afraid to fight back in the audience because nobody was coming out of the closet that much, right? So I remember I did a bit. I had this whole bit about um, there was a guy who came and visited me uh, from Pittsburgh, uh, uh, and he and he was the first time he came to L.A. He he was like shocked because I lived in West Hollywood, which is they call it Boys Town. It was a very gay community, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was shocked. Like we were driving down 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 the you know Santa Monica Boulevard to go to the Improv, and he was like, "Look at them all! Look at them all!" It's like I said, "What are we? What are we? What are we at? You know what I mean? What is this?" You know, this is not a zoo. Safari park. Yeah, yeah, safari park. I mean, come on, easy, you know. And um, and then I, I pulled into Ralph's to get something, and he's, he's like, you know, don't leave me in a car. You know, he's like, I can't come in with you. Don't think we're a couple. You know, it was just all this. I did this bit. And then leave it. He says, oh. he says, don't leave me in the car alone. Like, I, you know, they'll hit on me. Like they're, And I said, like, they're waiting in the ambush, you know. <laughs> and so when I did the acting out part of the waiting in the ambush, you know, I did sort of a swishy character. I didn't even realize I was doing it. I said, there he is. Get down. You know, let's sneak up on him, you know, and uh, something like that. And I did it on the evening at the improv. And when it came off, it killed, it killed, man. And I thought, great, because I found a new area that comics weren't doing. It's always comics always look for that. Like who, you know, you, you want to find a place that nobody else is doing and you break new ground with it. You know, people weren't doing homophobic material. Right, I found out something new. I can make fun of homophobes, which was great. And I come off, and I felt so good about myself and so righteous and successful. And I go out to the bar at the Improv, and this gay guy, clearly gay guy, comes up to me. He says, I just saw you, what you did. It was fantastic. I love it. Can I buy you a drink? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And he goes, let me ask you a question. He said, you know, when you end the bit, you do this character. Uh, you're obviously mocking uh, your your friend who's uh, uh, worried about being hit on by gay people in the parking lot. He said, but you do the character of the gay guys sneaking up on him. You do sort of a swishy character. Do you think, do you think they're laughing at the swishy character you're doing or you're uh, mocking the swishy character? Yeah. I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. They were laughing really at the swish, yeah. not at the stereotype, the mocking of the stereotype. So it really taught me a lesson there. I started looking at everything I was doing why are they laughing? Became an important part of the equation. Yeah, yeah. You should always ask yourself, especially if you're doing material you think is edgy or risky. Yeah. If you're doing a rape joke, what are, they, what are they laughing at? What are they laughing at? Are, they, are you mocking the victim or are you mocking the perpetrator? Where, where's your stance here? What are they laughing at? And that became an important part of my equation. This one guy just sort of hit me to that fact. And I changed the bit. From then on, when I did the bit, I wouldn't do a switch character. I'd do a, a regular guy. And you know what? It got less laughs. Oh, really? 
Yeah. yeah. There you go. I, I sacrificed laughter that one time, <laughs> which I'd never do before. <laughs> Living in San Francisco, I know uh, that uh, you know uh, I was you know uh, rubbing elbows with the with the, with the gay uh, culture there quite a bit. And uh, my thought of gay men is often like men who really work out a lot and really do have this very masculine, you know, powerful Ultra. thing. Ultra. Yeah, yeah, not you know, yeah. yeah the, that, the the idea of the the little queer is is something that's much more active in you know character. Characterization that it right, real right. Life, it was a real know? stereotype that I didn't realize I'd slipped into it. Yeah. Even though I thought I was doing the concert well, everywhere at the time, it was hard, hard not to. You know. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And talking about the reason for the last, that, that's sort of the, the the point that uh, that hung up uh, Dave Chappelle supposedly. You know, was sort of doing these characters that were you know very knowing coming out of the black community, but realizing that doing them for white audiences that it was what getting, were they laughing at? It was getting close to minstrelsy in some sort of right, way, and right. you know, really you know made him take Paul's famously. Yeah, know? yeah. I remember when that happened. I thought of that immediately. Yeah, like, there there is something I understood totally. It's, it's it's interesting too, and it's something that, you know, I, almost I feel like I, I I'm prone not to see really coming from like a working class background, but you really almost specialized in, in working in, in, in sort of working class uh, situations after that, working uh, on Roseanne, an incredibly groundbreaking show. Right. About working class characters and and married with children, which also work very in that, working class, yeah, you know, but in a, in a little more of a grotesque way in some ways <laughs> or whatever. And later for Jeff Foxworth, yeah, who uh, you know I, I always appreciated uh, well, he, his he, work. He had a blue collar sense to him. I just enjoyed that, and I felt comfortable with it from my background. Yeah. I never really thought I thought I was like you know they get in basketball they always say he's a tweener, like he's not tall enough to be a forward, but he's. He's not athletic enough to be a guard. He's a tweener. I always thought of myself as a tweener intellectually. Like people would hear me, they wouldn't think he's a college grad or he went to law school. Yeah. But I was a little bit too intellectual to be truly accepted as a blue collar. I was kind of caught in that no man's land. And so, but I felt most comfortable just, again, when you say um, you become uh, gruff, I was gruff. That's who I was. But I, my sensibility was not gruff. So I just had to be as honest as I was. And I mocked guys in my act. I mocked guys, which probably, you know, to Tim Allen, he, his whole thing was with he, he just sort of lionized the whole male behavior. And he sort of, he, but he caught the wave correctly. Because I caught, I was in a whiplash, you know, when people were like sick of that Allen, all the sensitive crap, you know. What about us guys? We're not getting enough justice here. Us white men. You know, so I... You know, was still, they looked at me as sort of like a, a male apologist, and he was a male celebrant. Yeah. He yeah. celebrated the male. I once did a tour. I did a power tool tour. Bring a power tool, get in free. Right? This is like 80, 81. So when I went to, I did material, like I, I, but I mocked the guys in the search for power. I said, like, I, I look, I do housework, like any guy, once I get into it, I want to get the best equipment. That's why I got that new Sears 500 horsepower riding vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Better make sure the cat's out of the house before I turn this thing on, right? So I was mocking guys in their power thing. I said, I, I, got a, I go fishing, but I got a 10-foot bass boat with 200 horsepower Everwoods on the back. When you hook a bass at 90 miles an hour, it takes the fight right out of them. <laughs> so those things were more mocking than they were selling. And yeah. Tim Allen went the other way. And he caught the wave right. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You, you you dissect that in the book, and I, I never really thought of it that way. But yeah, you're exactly right on that. Where where he was, uh, you know, also politically, I think he's also in a sort of very conservative place. Oh yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fit yeah. all fit together, dovetailed together. But just in terms of the male female politics, 
You know, I just was more comfortable. Look, my job in my house growing up was protect mom. Yeah. Was 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 you know bolster mom and make her laugh or whatever physically stand in the way but that's what I was that's who I was so I always felt more comfortable you know defending the woman than than yeah. than the guy I I had two older sisters so I was very aware that there were girls who could beat me up if they needed to <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I just always sort of like had a different respect I, yeah, I, I yeah. always grew up with a lot of yeah. female friends and yeah. I wasn't into that you know, I I kind of saw that macho thing as really being my enemy That's as a kid thing. as I never well liked it. You know? I never liked it yeah. I saw it did, didn't like it so there and, you go. Uh, yeah, growing up in the town with you know midget football at eight years old and everything, <laughs> I did feel a little out of step we, we there. We had this myself. guy Hammy Wilmerth who who coached the, the Cub midget football, and again this era back then, you know, and the dads would sit around there, and Hammy would literally, I mean, he would be arrested so fast that today he would literally put his foot up your ass. That would and and the dads are like, hit him, Hammy, get him. He's not learning. Give him a good swift kick. And the dads would be like cheering Hammy on, you know. And because that's the era, and that's the that's yeah. the that no was, no worry about childhood concussions. No. Then how, how many times were those like eight year olds on the sidelines? No. Like he's not getting up. He's not getting up. He care. <laughs> so it was a whole different th- thing, you know, and a whole different uh, 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 culture that we grew up in. Yeah, yeah. friend of mine said, what you need to do, Rich, is get testosterone. You need testosterone supplements. That'll help, you know. Yeah, that'll really help me. That's what I need is testosterone, right? I have the, I have the anger of a 19-year-old and the reflex of a 60-year-old. <laughs> That's a recipe for an ass kicking right there. Like a lot of uh, you know stand-ups at the time, there was there was a certain crash at the, at the uh, of the comic boom, and you talk about the digging through the ashes here a bit. Um, there's a real transition to be made, sort of uh, you know with the, the job skills you had. You talked about a lot of uh, uh, of stand-ups went into writing. You, you uh, went into writing for television. For I a got while. into it later. I mean, I was when I got into it, I was 40 uh, when I started getting into the writing for television because I'd burn out on. I'd had five TV pilots that didn't get turned into series. Yeah. And, and any of those I, memorable? Any of those that you, you uh, The back one on? that I looked at the best was probably the last one. I was uh, Rick Dukeman and I did a thing called Buddies. And, and they finally, the best shot of, see, my problem was they couldn't figure out how to do, what I did on stage, I always got laughs by mocking the guy. So I did this deep voice guy character. Right. Right. Uh-huh. I do this deep voice gruff character. That was my laugh line. But my setup was a straight guy. So how can you do that in a series? I couldn't play the gruff guy in a series because I was really the straight guy. Yeah, yeah. So they got me Dukeman. He played my alter ego, my buddy. He was that single guy, rough, I remember, gruff remember his guy. name. I'm trying yeah, to he, was a, he was a big, heavy guy. God mm-hmm. rest his soul. He just died about a year or two ago. And, and I liked him. And we, and, and we were friends off stage. I'd known him since I moved to L.A. in 82. So we did this thing in like 93, 92, 93, whatever it was around that era. Uh that was our best shot. It was, it, I thought we had a good series there, and it, it didn't, it, they didn't pick it up. And uh, I had a daughter born, and another one coming. And I was like, "What am I going to do on the road all the time doing these comedy clubs? I'm not making it. I'm not. 
And again, this was like the really the way to make it back then was to get a series, unless you were so good and so different like Stephen Wright, which I wasn't. I was like a ton of other male, straight white male stand-ups. And so somebody said, you know, you everybody likes your writing, man. You write great material. You could write sitcoms. You should get on sitcoms. They could use guys like you. And so I called up, and this was like February. And I knew everybody was in season. Everybody was already working. It's, everybody had their staffs. But my friend said, just call up everybody you know to try to lay the groundwork to get a job next September. This was February. So maybe next September you'll, you'll have time to write a, a spec, a sitcom spec, which is like a, a, a script to show that you could do those kind of things. You'll have time to do that. So I called everybody I knew. Seinfeld, Tim Allen, Roseanne. They all had series. Roseanne called me back that night. Said, you want a job? I love you. Come tomorrow <laughs> to the studio. And I started writing for Roseanne the next day. Wow. I never wrote a spec script. I just showed up, and I was really uh, one of the comics that they go punch up the jokes, make them funnier. That was my main thing. Was Tom Arnold with the show Tom at this Tom Arnold was with the show then. Um, uh, I saw that transition of him leave and then a new boyfriend and husband come oh, in. Oh, that's and, right, the, yeah, the so bodyguard. Yeah, the bodyguard. <laughs> and uh, so I had like a story that I didn't put in the book because it didn't fit the time frame. Yeah. But I'll send it to you. It's about me and Charlie Hill, the Indian comedian, and how I got a script. I, 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 I just jumped a bunch of people to get a script because uh, I really wasn't due for one. Yeah. There's 25 writers on the staff back then. She had a, the biggest staff. And most staffs are like eight, nine writers at the time. Would you get like a few jokes in each, each show? Yeah, or? yeah. You get, you just, you'd, you'd get the script. See, what happened was a lot of times they'd get a script, right? They'd do a table read on Monday, right? The show's going to be taped on Friday. Do a table read. Everybody reads a script. Everybody hears it for the first time. A lot of laughs. A lot of laughs. Then they go to the sound stage right after that, and they start rehearsing it. First time they did a joke, not so many laughs because a lot of the people who were at the table reading are there at the rehearsal. But they get some laughs from the tech people. The camera guys hadn't heard it yet. And all. <laughs> now the next time they do a, a rehearsal, nobody's laughing because everybody's heard the jokes. So then the actors go, these jokes aren't any good. They don't remember they got last before. <laughs> so they call down to, they got to punch these jokes up. This joke, this joke, this joke. And that would be my area of expertise. We were a couple other comics who were really good at joke writing. And we would punch up those jokes. So you just generate jokes after joke all through the week. This happens all through the week. You know, it gets a laugh the next time. It, two times later, it does get a laugh. Need another joke, another joke, another joke. So all these jokes get kept in a book, right? They get kept. So the night of the taping, you go out, now this joke, like just say, for example, this one joke has had five different versions of it by the end of the week. They're all in the book. The, the head writer's got this book with all these jokes in it. So the first time they do a taping, that joke doesn't get a laugh. That's the sixth version of that joke, right? It's You've probably the weakest it one. Yeah, but it's yeah. the weakest one. Yeah, yeah. So the, inevitably, this would happen. The head writer would go out there and he'd, he'd say, well, let's try this joke. It's the first joke that was in the script. <laughs> The audience hears it, laughs, because it was the best joke. <laughs> and not always, but that happened a lot. Wow. So, how, how many seasons did you work for Roseanne? Uh, three. Wow. Three. Yeah. yeah. But in the book, you talk about the, the you know, the even though the, the skill sets sort of uh, interlap, the idea of being a lone comic on the road, writing stuff and performing it and getting that feedback—that's a lot different than sitting in an office uh, with twenty-five other you know, joke writers. Comics would lose their minds sometimes. I saw comics do it, you know. Because we're used to deciding what goes in our act. We know it works for us. This yeah. one comic, Dave Tyree, I loved him. He'd go, that's funny, and I, I know it's funny. And you want to go, you know it's funny for your act, but this is not your act. This is this sitcom. <laughs> and so we'd, 
we'd always struggle with that. I mean, I felt the same way as he felt. I just kept my mouth shut. Right. And so they'd go, that's not good. I mean, you pitch a joke and they'd go, somebody, maybe everybody laughed. And then one of the other head writers, somebody with you know, a bigger title than you would go, uh, I don't know if I like that or not. What do you mean you don't know if you like it? Everybody laughed. If they laugh, it's good. You know, so you have to keep your mouth shut because you don't have the power anymore. And that's a huge adjustment. That's a tough adjustment yeah. for a comic. We're everything. When we were the writer, like you said, we do everything. Yeah. And then to come back out there and, and all of a sudden get back in the end of the line with your jokes. Whew. I'm guessing the payoff. I mean, uh, uh, check. Check, check paid off well. Check. But, Big but the, the, the emotional payoff, not, not, not the same as being a stand-up. No. And, and the more I did writing, the less I performed stand-up. And I didn't realize how much I got from the stand-up. That's one of the things I talked about in the book. We always Comics always like to talk about how much they give the audience. The audience gets a lot out of the laughter. And we always look at, look at ourselves like doctors. Comics will call each other doctor. Hey, doctor, how you doing? Like, we do a lot of healing. That's like We like to think that. Yeah, yeah. But what we, what we don't talk about is how much healing we get from the laughter. Sure, yeah. And when I stopped getting that laughter, I started getting depressed. And then I went into a, a, a long slide. It was, it was. I didn't realize how much I missed it until I came back to it. How, how long were you were you out of doing stand-up? Really out of it from, I uh, did my last Tonight Show with Jay Leno in 96. Uh-huh. By 97, 98, I was not performing stand-up. And then came back to it like 2010, 2011. I, saw, I, I haven't seen you perform, I guess, since those days. But I did uh, catch on YouTube. I called... Uh, I called a, a, an act you did back a few years ago, and really funny. Yeah, new still, stuff. Still really yeah. funny. You, well, one of the funniest moments uh, was uh, some woman interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that comedy magic club. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, really like. Okay, I. <laughs> yeah, I. I love. I always love spritzing with the crowd. I never looked at the hecklers like people when they say things. Sometimes I think they're just challenging you to see if you're, you know, there that night. Yeah. Are you here or are you just on remote control doing the same thing you always do? Somehow you've gotten them excited. You know? <laughs> yeah, and I love that playfulness. It's yeah, fun. Yeah. yeah, you were great with it. It, was, it, it got some of the biggest laughs of the thing. Um, how often have you been doing stand-up uh, in, in recent years? A lot. I'm going to do a show tonight in Pennsville. That's right. <laughs> for the, for two Democratic candidates for a township committee. Wow. Because I do the big political fundraisers. <laughs> You've done a few gigs in Pennsville over the years. I saw you yeah. did a New Year's Eve gig a while ago. And, yeah, a couple of years ago. And I, you were even I, at AJ's? Were yeah, you? I did AJ's. And it was great because all Still these Tom's people Still Tom's Tavern to me. Uh, exactly to me. And then my dad's <laughs> generation was Dominic's. Uh, really? But the place is still there. How does Howard Pennsville audiences I you? had fun. I did a lot of stories about Pennsville. And they loved that, you know, and talk about this growing up in the you know, amusement park right there and all the stories and things. And, uh, and then my regular material. And it's great because a lot of people come around who I haven't seen in a long time, and it's, it's sort of like a reunion week. Yeah, it's fun. That's wonderful. And you're doing the Borgata, I think, down in Atlantic yeah, City. Yeah, I'm doing as well, that uh, right? this Sunday through Wednesday. Yeah. Did you do Atlantic City a lot over the years? I do, I do it like two. It looks like I mean, I, I did it three. I'm doing it three times this year. I'm coming back Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I do it like two, three times a year now. What, what's, what's, uh, what's in your routine these days that's, that wouldn't be in your routine years ago? Getting older. <laughs> getting older. Had a feeling. Yeah, getting older. That's in there. Wow. Yeah, the differences, you know, my reaction to any of the technology or social media, that's a, that sort of thing. Yeah, and you've had a family, I think, really, since yeah, then yeah, as well. Yeah, the kids are, yeah. kids are older now, so I do jokes about being younger, but I also do them about being older now, too. Two girls you have? Two girls and a boy. Two girls and a boy. Yeah, because I'm crazy. 
<laughs> I have one, and I find it exhausting when I yeah, hear about yeah, people yeah. with two or it's, three. It's, like, it's, it's insane. You're outnumbered hey, I was by very them. stupid. Very stupid. <laughs> what do your kids think about your act? Well, they all they all get a kick out of it, you know. They know what this is who I am, what I do. I, I always like to say that all my kids have a good sense of humor. I think I help give them a good sense of humor, but not the disease of stand-up. They don't have that. My oldest daughter, we were running once, and she's very funny. And I, I said, she's a singer and a songwriter. And I said, you should do stand-up. And she goes, Dad, I don't want to raise my bar for acceptance that high. <laughs> I go, I get you. <laughs> I'm not getting approval. I don't know what you're. I don't know what you're saying. I was really surprised when I when I got to the end of your book. I was really, uh, you know, expecting the end of the book to be really, uh, you know, sort of an upbeat like <laughs> nothing, nothing, you know, uh, made me more better seasoned than this life I've had. <laughs> and now I'm at the hill of wisdom and looking down. And yet it has it ends a bit on a sad, alienated yeah. note. Yeah. Uh, can you can you? I mean, well, because by spoiling the ending of the no, book, I don't know. no, no, it's my <laughs> truth. It's what happened. I, and I only could cover the that 80s explosion and by the 90s that's what happened to me happened to a lot of people you know the the, the 90s happened and the comedy sort of had a dip you know after every explosion there's a fallout yeah i and think a lot of people looking for a second act in their life at that right, age as well yeah. right and so the so the, a lot of people were like like me going well what happened there you know because i didn't make it and and now i'm doing this and it's not what i expected and and uh, it got seduced by the laughter and dumped out on the side of the road. So I should stop for just a second. Yeah. When you say you didn't make it, you know, you performed on the night, Tonight Show oh, like no, 14 I know, times. I know. See, but that's the, whole, that's the whole crazy thing about it. And I, you're right. I, and I said that in the book. I mean, it's all relative. And yeah, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of guys who had a career and looked like, man, if I could have made it like Rich Scheid. Yeah, of, of course, of course. But... It, when you're when you're in this business and you go, if you're not drawing, and I wrote about this in the book, you know, the the big thing is drawing in the theaters, and you can't draw in theaters, you feel like, oh man, uh, I'm not a draw, and that's the big, that's making it. Yeah. When you become a draw, Stephen Wright draws. People pay to see Stephen Wright. People pay to see Jerry Seinfeld. People pay to see Bill Maher. I'm there. I'm like a barnacle. You know, I'm there on the side. <laughs> I just got to deal with whatever's given to me. And and, and you did some man shows for a while too, as well, didn't you? I tried those. Yeah, <laughs> you weren't happy with the results so much. You seem like you would be you know, a natural not, for that you know, transition too. I'm not too. a theatrical guy. Yeah, you know, so I never could get those moments where I got to be serious for a long period of time. And go, if I'm not getting laughs up there, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. So I never was like, oh, this is my moment where I I, I have pathos. You know what I mean? It's like dead time. I was in the motel and looked yeah, down at the yeah, pipe yeah, and yeah, said, yeah, yeah, no, no, can't no. do this to my kids anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah. And a lot of the one-man shows then were a lot of guys like me. I talked about this. We're just putting a, you know, it's a, the car was, was, was beat up and dinged up. And we go, if we just put a new hood on it, we could sell this car. And you're just putting a title to your act. You're just taking your act to put a title to it, which is essentially what I did. Yeah. What a lot of guys did, you know, yeah. and trying to make something out of that act that, that has not gotten you what you wanted to that point, which is becoming a draw. Yeah. Yeah. So the book really ends on that down note. I don't get the feeling that's that's, that's where you're really at. at the, no, at I, everything's <laughs> great. And I'm going to write some different things, but that's what that book was. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm I'm going to write more and continue writing more. But no, I, I, I'm I I'm not going to another, write another book about stand-up, but I wanted, I said my, the my life as a stand-up in the 1980s comedy boom. So when the boom went bust, so did I go bust. 
So yeah, I sort yeah. of dovetailed. I mean, I got into doing stand-up before the boom, so I was in perfect position to ride that wave. But when a wave crashed into the pier and I hit the pier... You were in perfect position to hit that pier. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I had, to, I had to be honest to that era and that, that time. What, what are you writing these days? I'm writing a book. Uh, right, uh, I'm going to write a book about the, a coming-of-age story. From It'll be about, a lot about Pennsville, 1972. But right now I'm writing a script about the first stand-up comic ever. Oh, really? The first stand-up comic ever. Oh, wow. There was a guy. <laughs> there was a guy. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I'm writing a script about him, and it'll be a book that uh, I write in companion to the script. But I'll finish the script first, and then I'll write, then I'll come out with a book about this first stand-up comic. Huh. I look forward to checking it out. Oh, yeah. I was thinking I was really disappointed in, in the book that it didn't go deeper into Pennsville, but I realized that disappointment was like me and 13,000 yeah. other people. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't expect yeah. it to all be about Pennsville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the coming of age story you'll like a lot more, be a lot more Pennsville. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, well, I've really, uh, Peyton, you're here for a while. Uh, I Rich. loved it. Thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, man. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's Fun to Know podcast. Thanks to Rich Scheidner for driving into Philly to talk to us. You can find out more about him at his website, richscheidner.com, that's S-H-Y-D-N-E-R, or at his Facebook page. You can check out his book, Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life as a Stand-Up in the 1980s Comedy Boom, and keep out an eye for one of his many stand-up appearances. As for me, you can check out my writing on film at falker.com, that's P-H-A-W-K-E-R.com. Look for the documentary film class I'll be teaching at Fleischer Art Memorial this summer. Hear me spinning jazz at WPRB Princeton Mondays at 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. over the air and at WPRB.com, and I hope you'll return back for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.